Here we go. Folks, this is your host Cameron Ivy of Privacy Please, and thank you so much for tuning in each and every week. If this is your first time, welcome to the show. Tell your friends about it if you like it. If you don't, let's just pretend you didn't listen to it. Thanks again for coming in, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Gilbert. Hey, Cam. How are you? I'm good. What about you? Doing well. It's, it's a pleasure to meet you. Likewise. Likewise. And Baby Yoda in the background, the round. <laughs> My little sidekick. <laughs> hey, Gabe. Hey, how are you, sir? I'm good, thanks. Excellent. You've got a much more professional background than than even me or Cam. That's that's well, good. It's on point. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be. I mean, it's got a COVID bunker. <laughs> how much do you want for that? <laughs> do you ship to the UK? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Uh, like today? Let's see. Let's head over to... Uh, yeah. Ooh, over. I like that one. Yeah, let's head nice. over. Nice. Yeah. All right. Apologies for moving it on you also. Um, yes. got hectic at the last minute prepping for things this week, and I was like, oh, I won't be able to. Um, and on top of that, I equally had a thing going on here, which... It's better now. I'm sitting at the computer today, but honestly, this is the first time I've sat here for more than 20 minutes. Otherwise, I've been kind of laid up a little bit. So anyway, oh, no. thank you for, I don't know. Do you like, is it bit. from like slouching too much? It might be. It's probably from desk positions, but it's it's like right here and it comes across and it's it's just the muscle is like, it's like a rock, but it hurts. It just tenses. Interesting. Anyway. Uh, before this call, I actually just made an appointment with my doctor for next week because it's been going on for so long that I'm like, all right, I might just need, I don't know, like metacarbal or something to loosen this thing out. I don't know what Maybe, it is. Or it, may, or it might be it might be a posture thing, I found. Uh, probably is. And I'm sure I need to do something about it. And do, you, um, because, yeah. do, you, do you carry a bag around you? Around when you go places? I mean, Where, I, carry, I carry a bag, but that's just for my sales team, you know? Cause I mean, do you do you tend to favor your your right side? No, I know what you're asking. Your left yeah. side. Yeah, the left. I, I don't know what it is other than probably posture. Um, yeah. I mean, and stress. Because it does that to me sometimes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Probably stress. Yeah. Are you stressed? I mean, <laughs> yeah. What's there to be stressed about? Right. Right. <laughs> I'm not going through no, a global pandemic. <laughs> there's, there's plenty, but there's, there's small victories. I'm just I'm just really happy that today um, I've managed to get my first haircut and beard trim in several months because they've opened barbers in the UK. So oh, like, that's awesome. So there's a queue stretching down the road of like guys waiting to get my haircut, and also lots of lots of guys taking their like taking their sons like um that seems to be a real priority so you got like these kids with like really like cute long hair i'm like going i wish i had that problem you know like don't <laughs> don't cut it enjoy it while you can you yeah. meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile the barber of Sevilla is thinking great time to reinvent myself yeah <laughs> <laughs> now seems like it <laughs> Yeah. Oh man, I didn't know it was that locked down over there. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's been like that for a few months. Um, I think they let it all sort of like go around Christmas, and then they they ramped it back on. And it seems to it seems to have worked because we seem to be over it, and we seem to have um, got to grips with like a whole vaccination thing as well. So hopefully, it's back to whatever the new normal is. Yeah, I uh, yeah, I don't know what it is either. I, I got vaccinated on Friday, so that was pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. It was weird. Have you have you done, gone yet, Gabe? Which part was weird? Um, like walking through the tents with like the army people, and uh, it felt like I was oh, wow. like camp. It was like, really well, like it was uh, very like Walgreens or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny story. My my wife said, "Hey, they're doing uh, they have tents and stuff up, but or actually, shouldn't say." That. I'm setting it up wrong. So she said, Hey, you need to go down to the racetrack and get your vaccination shot. And in my this head, sounds I was like thinking, something out of Goodfellas or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you got to go to the abandoned for a sports stadium and get your shot. <laughs> yeah. I, my, my instant thought was, You want me to go to the racetrack gas station? Because that's, that's what we have here is just racetrack gas station. So I didn't think, because we do have a racetrack here in Tampa uh, where it's actually a racetrack for like horses or it used to be. But they have they have a whole tent like this whole giant thing set up and it was an easy process. Uh, it didn't hurt until two days later. Actually, it hurts right now. Feels like someone gave me a frog frog punch. You know, yeah, repeatedly for days. Yeah, yeah. But it like feels pretty. Guys. It feels pretty surreal. It's pretty nice. Um, yeah, but yeah. Anyways. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Privacy, Please. I'm your host, Cameron Ivey, and with me, as always, Mr. Gabe Gums. How you doing today, Gabe? I'm not too shabby. You know what day it is? It's not hump day. It's not Friday. It's not Friday either. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a special day, though. It, it is a special day because we have a wonderful show today. Uh, Gilbert Hill, he's the technologist, entrepreneur, and head of strategy at Tap My Data, He's also the latest advisor at the Rise of Privacy Tech. Gilbert, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Gilbert, tell us about yourself. Okay. Um, so in terms of um, myself and privacy, um, I think it's I think it's I was thinking about this. I think it's fair to say that um I got into privacy by mistake. Um it wasn't my first calling, and I, I'm sort of I'm glad that I didn't take a sort of conventional route if that existed, via you know being a privacy lawyer or you know an out and out techie. I actually back in the day I studied archaeology and anthropology. Um, that was basically from a love of the former, which I got from sort of digs in the West Country in Switzerland. But I quickly became like really fascinated by how relevant this study of patterns in of recent you know current or recent human behavior are when we're studying you know uh looking at looking looking at privacy now i come back again and again to what i learned um in anthropology because we are talking about part of a kind of sort of social the social dance what we're happy what we're cool with and what we're not um and how that we can get that wrong online but i mean going you know you know, back then, I didn't want to sort of stay in academia or work as a practical archaeologist because that's a lot of fun when you're 20. 
um, being a sort of a muscle on the end of a trowel. But when you're, you know, in your 40s, it's not so much fun. So I took up a job on Citigroup's graduate trainee program, um, which I found a great insight into how a large sort of sometimes dysfunctional organization works over really big distances and with thousands of human moving parts and security. And to a lesser extent, privacy was a big part of that because we were supposed to you know, respect our clients' um, privacy and security at all times when we are managing money. Now, this was a time of the original dot-com boom, and I found myself sort of gravitating towards projects to build, which were back then the bank's first digital channels around web um, and email marketing, which later became the kind of building blocks of a data trade that we now see, and which we some of argue has kind of got 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 out, out of control. Um, and now, when that boom went pop, I took the opportunity back in the late '90s to start a web agency with a friend that I'd made in college, and we were building, you know, websites and database-driven applications. And we found ourselves more and more getting sucked into this, working with data, and in the sort of world of behavioral marketing. Um, so we were working with, you know, things like cookies and other things that we see now as privacy invasive technologies. But for me and my team, cookies were just tools. So they're sort of small snippets of code that, as we know, make the web work in terms of personalization. Obviously, what we've seen subsequently is that these tools sort of took on a dual function. Um, and they've been part of, you know, creating and tracking profiles of us all as part of a kind of multi-billion dollar business of behavioral advertising. Um, and I think, so So I wasn't really aware of what, of this relationship between, you know, data and responsibility and regulation until the introduction of the EU cookie laws about five years ago. Um, now, these laws um, require website owners to inform users about what cookies they set, what those cookies do, and why. Um, and they were a starting point for me and a lot of other people to learn about, you know, the more um, well, less well-known uses of cookies in, in making us the product. I mean, we've heard of that expression, you know, if you're getting something for free on the web, you're the product. Um, and we're used to all these free services. Um, and, you know, we've seen the sort of um, uh, end result of that with, you know, manipulation of our emotions in things as exposing things like the great hack on Netflix. And I think that, you know, with the introduction of these laws, that kicked off some of the process for me and I think for organizations, which is greatly added to by GDPR down the line, um, which um, and provided a whole bunch of remedial work for lawyers, um, predominantly in advisors, and advisors, and a sort of a clutch of products for companies to deal with a risk that many of them didn't know they had. Um, and so I think we've been in this phase, um, really, which we're only just coming out of, um, as I sort of view it as sort of digital asbestos removal or, you know, hazmat removal. But we've all got used to these lakes of data and we've seen them as companies have rightly seen them as an asset. Um, but, you know, without taking care of this stuff and, and, and doing the right thing by, by regulations, these can turn toxic. Um, and so, you know, for me and, and, and my team, this is an opportunity to sort of automate some of this digital um, asbestos removal, and we created a product um, to help companies manage their risk using cookie banners, which yeah. now are part of a street furniture of the web. So you can, and I find them super annoying too. So you can partly blame me for that. Um, and you know, this, the, you know, from 
being something that we use to solve a problem, we productized this and this very quickly became the, the most dynamic bit of a business. And we sold that to uh, OneTrust uh, back in uh, 2017. And since then, that text propagated all across the web because OneTrust had become one of the first sort of privacy tech unicorns. And it's a strange feeling to see this tech in use with you know around 60% of the Fortune 500 companies' websites. But I really believe that, you know, our work um, is only just beginning. Um, you know, this has been about companies getting their own house in order around a set of compliance obligations. And, you know, meanwhile, this kind of engine of data commerce has been roaring away. So, like, there's been more data than ever from my, like, my Fitbit. Um, I've got colleagues who are thinking of getting a Tesla. That's a fantastic, you know, source of data as well as a source of flexing, you know. Um, and, um, you know, most of the data in the world was created in the last two years post-GDPR. So, I think that the work is only just beginning of baking, like, a, a baseline of privacy and privacy by design into key business processes and tech. Um, and also we're seeing, you know, you know, there's a process of reacquainting people with their rights um, and, and, you know, an understanding of their data so they can, they can make a choice with that. And I actually believe that they'll make the choice in many cases to continue using those services, but from a, from a position of, of, of knowing what's going on. So that's been my kind of journey. And I view it very much as kind of as, 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 as ongoing. I think I was on a, on a call with um, uh, the guy, the CEO of the Data Dividend Project a couple of days ago, and he was saying that we're two years into a 10-year journey here. So this is just the, just the beginning. Two years into a 10-year journey. What happens at the end of this 10-year journey? And I assume you don't mean that like, you know, something happens and that's the end of it at 10 years. There's probably some other transformation that happens along the way. So talk about talk about that as well, the transformation that we expect to see over the course of this next 10 years, but what that transformation looks like at the end of 10 years. Well, well, that's a, that's a tough one to answer because I, you know, if you look back at the kind of, and this is why I started with things like you know archaeology and anthropology. When you know the alien anthropologists dig up our remains and look at what we've left, they'll sit. You know, we, we think look at the history of tech. You've seen that originally, you know, the internet was designed. You know, the first age of the internet was about computers talking to other computers. And that was a kind of product, that connectivity. What we've been in, you know, in the second age, as sort of Tim, so Tim Berners-Lee talks about, is that, you know, that's been where um, people, or more specifically, our data and our attention has become the product. And I think we're reaching, you know, we've all got used to that. And that's been, that's been uh, the catalyst to create vast fortunes and connect billions of people. And it's undoubtedly be a, been a force for good. I think what we're going to see in, you know, the next phase of this development in this next 10 years is where there's going to be a rebalancing between the individuals and organizations who've got all this data um, and also also you're going to see greater involvement within the state so i guess that's a roundabout saying that there's no one has a single vision for this but that's very exciting so this isn't down to, to tim berners lee or one of you know or or to mark zuckerberg or even to a you know a head of state or a powerful regulator we're talking about a situation where people have more agency over their data there's 
more of a level playing field um, for new entrants um, to the data trade. Um, and also you've got a situation where um, these huge platforms are actually asking for more regulation because they've kind of knocked out all of the competition. So you've got a situation where essentially, you know, Facebook, and this has been seen like with the COVID thing, I've, you know, I've, I'll come to this later, but I've crept back to Facebook because it's been really useful when you're locked down to, as social plumbing to keep in touch with the people that you, that you care about. But in doing that, they're providing a, uh, a public service. And with that, you know, so Facebook and the rest of big tech are going to have responsibilities which will go beyond just we have to do this and we have to say this because GDPR or because CPRA or or whatever we're obliged to say. So I think it's a real rebalancing that we're going to see over the t- next 10 years where you're going to have states playing a role, um, big tech playing a different kind of role. Um, and for the first time, you're going to have data citizens or actually actually uh, there's a um i heard a great uh, description of this there's a uh, dame wendy hall is a very sort of famous um academic in terms of ai in the uk and she was saying a few days ago that we've all become prosumers that we're no longer consuming data and products and surface digital services we're producing that data and we're starting to have more of a say around it so i think it's you know just like we've seen in things like um uh, finance with DeFi, um, where you've been have people using, you know, disrupting existing processes and channels. You're going to have a similar situation with data, and that's a long-term process. So, so if it's done right, at the end of this ten years, there won't be any winners that we recognise. Mm. Will there be losers? Yes, I think um, companies whose business models are predicated solely on monetization of data, um, increasingly people are going to be asking what kind of value they're they're adding. And I think we've already seen a lot of those companies start to drop out of the race because, you you know, you're starting to – you're going to have to – appeal to and win the trust of consumers to build long-term value. And we're actually starting to see that also come into the the investment space, that investment companies want to know that there's a strategy around data, which isn't just, which goes beyond just let's get all the data, hold it more or less securely and work out how to monetize it down the line. So I think the days of that, of, of, of that business model are kind of, are kind of numbered, um, because I think we're, with data, we're all going to have to get used to doing, uh, as a marketer, you know, I've, I've seen that we've had to get used to doing more with less. And I think that's set to stay. And that's a good thing. There's, I've been taking some notes while we're talking because I've got a wealth of questions that I want to get into. But I'm going to start with the following. Because um, you mentioned, you know, cookies haven't taken on dual function in the internet. And I have been in and around the interwebs for long enough to uh, to remember it not being as commercial as it is today. To remember when protocols and RFCs were largely adhered to, because it was mostly just technologists building technology. And so, you know, we didn't we didn't build technology that didn't adhere to an RFC because why would you? Like we want it to work properly and, and alongside that. But browsers and the HTTP protocol in particular 
and everything that surrounds the way most of us interact with the internet, namely through the web, is broken by design, very broken by design. There's lots of things that are just broken um, in the HTTP protocol, et cetera. And when I use the word broken, uh, I mean, it wasn't designed to do most of what we're asking it to do. Cookies is a very good example of that. And so it, it's not really taking on this dual purpose. Advertisers, marketers, data collectors have abused cookies, abused mm. them over the years. Um, super cookies in particular really come to mind. I I was personally working on a project a little while ago, um, kind of leveraging super cookies to be able to re-identify individuals. It's not super difficult. It requires a little bit of work and a little bit more data. And I kind of had to shuffle for a little while, but I'll probably pick it up here in 2021. Super cookies though, right? Completely, completely violating our trust. And very recently, Firefox even took some uh, some care to to break and crack down on some of those super cookies. Um, in fact, their latest version uh, of their software does a really good job of crack down it hard. Um, the EFF has privacy badger, et cetera, that cracks out on cookies too. What are we going to do about cookies? How are we going to solve for the privacy problem when the internet is inherently broken by design? And we know that we can still leverage that brokenness by design to violate privacy. The cookie law was a great one, but I'm not sure where that law meets the the road when it comes to things like super cookies. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's a great point. I think you're right. The the use of these um, technologies like cookies. And also the use of consent got stretched to like breaking point that there was all sorts of consent for all sorts of different um, practices being bundled in in a long form terms and conditions statement. And, you know, in many cases, we weren't even aware of the choices that we we're ostensibly making. And I think that's, just, I'm, I'm, I have to say that having been partly responsible for DNA of a lot of the solutions that are out there. Um, I think the cookie situation is more broken than ever. And you've seen like the cookie banner has now become part of that malevolent UX or sort of dark patterns that the cookie banners have got bigger and bigger. And I'm just like everyone else. I click on them to make them go away. Meanwhile, the cookies technology has continued to, to evolve and become more insidious. So I don't even know what I'm, I'm, what, what rights I'm, I'm, I'm waving away. I think um, it's easy to sort of demonize cookie banners and the cookie law because the direction of travel was always to move. At the moment, each company, as you know, is responsible for putting in place some kind of cookie solution, which at the most base level, you know, picks up the cookies, categorizes them into sort of, you know, good, good, bad, and super evil cookies and then discloses that via a um, cookie banner. And the idea was always to move that up to the browser level, um, that that's controlled at the browser level. The problem was that the browser manufacturers are also the biggest you know, beneficiaries of the, current, of the current structure. So how do we break out of that? I think that um, it's a question of the uh, activities of companies who, want, who aren't, as I said, aren't... Um, you know, using cookies to do anything nefarious or out of the ordinary. They want to just manage their risk around the way they use data and cookies have been an effective tool. And they've all got these huge, 
you know, web estates, if you talk to an FMCG company, they've got literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of websites all using these cookies. Some of and they're not aware of, of, of some of the technology that they're using, if they've done it via partners and third parties. So they've started to move towards a situation where you've got preference centers. So I think the solution for this is to first of all, you know, we're moving, you know, we're moving to slowly but surely to a a post cookie um, era. There will still be tracking. There'll be device tracking. There'll be um, other forms of tracking, um, but it will be more granular and more nuanced. And we're seeing companies. You mentioned Firefox, but also Apple have made this a big a big premium. You know, part of their premium offering. Right? But but Apple will say. We got this. We're also, you know, the other thing that cookies doesn't touch is is mobile apps. So most of the stuff that I do on the web is via this 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 handset. This is like my sort of my six gun, like in the wild west of the web, and um, I can use it for good or for ill. You have. Even the UK, <laughs> not Texas. <laughs> this, this is an international space, but um, you know. Um, that that was also a situation where there's widespread tracking going on. Again, Apple has been swooping in and 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 giving us prompts um, about about what's really happening with the choices when we download and use apps. I'll give you one example of this. Actually, I um, at home we've got a um, uh, we've got a, a pet rabbit who hops about and is always hungry. And the other night, it's starting to get dark here. Now I'm in London. Um, I was going to get her feed from the shed, and I used the flashlight app on my uh, on my um, phone. And at that point, because Apple have recently introduced an update, it said, "Do you know that this app? Do you give this app permission to use to use your uh, to see your contacts and to access your camera roll?" And I, you know, I'd never thought about it before. Before I was, I was given that prompt, I used the I used the app fine, and then when I got back in in, in the house, I looked at it. I saw that this blanket consent and this tracking technologies that they're using was enabling them to get so much more data than they needed, um, which was obviously part of their strategy for monetization. But I think that's what we've been. You know, cookies are are have been a big problem, but. Tracking illegitimate tracking and um, improperly managed risk continues to be a problem. And smart companies, smart companies get this. So actually, you know, companies like Apple or their multinational clients will want to know that they have a consistent approach to data risk and they're capturing the data that they need to. So super cookies um, are, 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 you know, and, and other kind of rogue tracking techs. Are going to get going to get harder and harder to 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 operate. You you said something else that I I want to get into, and I think uh, I think it's a good transition from our current topic, which is that there are new entrants into the data trade, and mm. the entrants that I am eagerly awaiting are you and I, all of us, your mom, my dad. Cameron's kids one day. I'm eagerly awaiting our ability to enter that data market. We our last show covered this topic a little bit also, right? That monetizing your own data and how is it that we take control of it from a monetary perspective? And you said something that I hadn't thought about, but it's really sticking with me. Companies that focus solely on monetizing data, 
they'll find themselves on the tail end of innovation. I, I'm, I'm, quote, I'm paraphrasing now, so by all means, uh, you know, can correct me where I'm there. But as you and I enter that trade, that data trade, and those organizations do not innovate on on the types of things that they, the types of ways they monetize their data or the types of data they monetize. Um, are there opportunities for for the collective people to innovate their way to some better distribution model of that data, some better monetization of that of that data? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and I think um, it's it's a real catalyst for this whole space. If we talk, you know, I, I, I like to talk about how the you know the first phase of privacy tech was around you know compliance driven. It was around obligations and companies getting their own house in order and to a certain extent keeping control. And I think you know privacy has almost become superseded by control. I'm, I want to have control over whether to share my data with you as an individual, as an organization online, in the same kind of nuanced way that I um, do offline. Um, uh, whereas we're coming out of a situation, I think you put it very well, with some of the um, uh, sort of most naked um, actors in the in the sort of a data trade where uh, you know, I'd go on, go somewhere online, either to use Wi-Fi or to access a web service, and I'd be sort of cracked over my head, and all my data would be taken. Now we have got a situation where there's a growing movement to, you know, re-emancipating citizens in terms of their data, and also its value. Um, and you know, we're seeing that whether it's new regulations like the Digital Markets Act in Europe. Um, which I'll come on to in a, in a little bit more detail because I, I think it's a really big deal. Or also there's the data dividend model led by, you know, which was socialized by Andrew Yang and the Yang Gang in the US, but now is starting to pick up speed. Everyone, you know, like Brittany Kaiser's now got involved and it's something um, I was discussing with her a few weeks ago. Um, I think that's going to be uh, a huge change to making a lot of this accessible because I think a lot of the privacy tech startups that haven't been based around kind of GRC and compliance focus have been, you know, they've been quite complex, they've been quite academic. Um, more recently, we've had um, a clutch of sort of privacy tech startups in the US and Israel, which focused on people being kind of pissed off and deleting their data from company records and mailing lists or creating like burner accounts, just like, you know, like Jack Reacher and his burner phones or a spy movie um, to obscure people's identities from marketers. Um, and I think we're moving beyond that to a situation where, um, you know, people want to be treated as data customers and to start to have a say to be dealt into the action. And, you know, I, that's something that I um, I got to grips with at Tap My Data. Um, now, after I um, uh, sold the business, the cookie business to OneTrust and sort of uh, migrated the, uh, the team over, I, um, I knew that I wanted to – I knew that still – Post GDPR, it was very hard to sort of exercise your rights as a data citizen and to start to get back your data compared to how easy it is to like lose it in the first place. And what I liked about Tap My Data was that they'd built a piece of consumer grade tech in the form of an app for people to exercise their rights. 
um, and to start to repatriate their data. And we sort of got talking back and forth until they asked me to leave the project. And um, at Tap My Data, very quickly, we found when they gave, we gave people the tools to, to, to um, take back control of their data, that actually they didn't want to delete the digital services they use or play at being spies or Jack Reacher. They're too busy. Um, but, you know, what we've seen is that they do um, want to know that their data is safe, it's private, and they're treated with respect. Um, and I think what we've seen more recently with, you know, there's been an exodus um, from WhatsApp to more privacy-centric messaging platforms like Signal and Telegram, um, which was a result of um, WhatsApp um, changing their terms to be in line with the rest of the Facebook family, is that when you give us um, a similar consumer-grade service, service with a smaller data footprint, that people are, are aware um, and are starting to vote with their feet, which I think is the first step towards um, moving to um, a situation where they can actually start to um, uh, actually start to monetize their data and have uh, have more agency, um, and I think there's going to be a lot more convergence between data privacy and blockchain um, and other new regulations coming down the pike. Um, and I mentioned um, in the EU the Digital Markets Act. I think that's um, really fundamental because it introduces and, and solidifies the concepts of data unions. Um, now, this addresses one of the big challenges, which, you know, to changing this kind of status quo around data, that individually, your voice or my voice is small, and our data isn't worth a whole lot. So it's not really, that creates a lot of friction towards us actually realizing its value. And actually, Mark Zuckerberg famously said that each Facebook user's data is worth $1 a year. Um, but that's largely because Facebook controls the value of that resource on its platform. Right, right, and right. so so <laughs> no one, you know, like neither users, neither we nor the advertisers know, see the spread between cost and price or even what data Facebook's playing with. It's a classic black box. But together, we're stronger. And with data unions, I can get together with others who share a belief system such as like, you know, a charity, my church or a community, and we can bargain collectively for our data and its value. And this is something that in the UK that my friend Shiv Malik um, has written and talked about um, very eloquently. Um, and, you know, when you combine that with the other element of, of you know, US legislation and also the Digital Markets Act, uh, which is around data portability, open you know, um, open APIs for our data, then there's suddenly framework and a choice for me as a citizen to choose to share my data free for the public good, which I'd be often, you know, I'd be wanted to do in, say, a, a COVID context, or it could be for a price to the right organization or not at all for others. And, you know, for advertisers, this is attractive because it breaks this kind of platform, the Facebook, Google stranglehold, and they can buy more accurate data and consumer insights from groups at scale. Um, and if you take that a step further, I'm kind of, yeah, again, this is why there's the 10-year plan here because this doesn't happen overnight, <laughs> is that if I've got my own preference center, which may be my mobile, my cell phone, or you know, a, a, on a, you know, a web preference center, then I can start to, you know, the problem with a lot of um, uh, you know, behavioral advertising is that it's, it's a rear view mirror. 
and it's a broken one at that. It sees that I wanted to buy pet food for my rabbit two weeks ago, so it gives me ads for that now. If you have a situation where the individual has more agency and more choice and can exercise preference and control their consent, then I can say, I'm interested in buying you know, a smartwatch now, so give me, give me ads. And actually, that gives a, lot, a much greater degree of granularity to advertisers as well, because at the moment, we're not getting the, the deal that we should from our data, but equally, advertisers aren't necessarily getting the best bang for their buck. And there's a whole lot of slippage. Some of it is legitimate, but also there's huge amounts of ad fraud. And I think we can get you know, all bent out of shape about privacy. But what we forget is that ad fraud is the, the second biggest source of income for organized crime after drugs. And again, so the amounts that we're talking about are huge here. And the, and, 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 you know, the, and the potential wins are, are, are also gigantic, both for individuals and for advertisers. What you're saying is I should set up a click farm. That's all I heard was I should set up a click farm. <laughs> I think it's funny that you mentioned drugs and then the advertisement second, because if you think about it nowadays, and I feel like I'm guilty of this is, we are addicted to our phones, our social media. <clears throat> so that's that relates really well. What Gilbert's not saying is those ads are for drugs. They're, they're ads uh, for drugs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, he didn't. Can, can, I, can, can I go back real quick? And uh, Talking about the cookies, I, I find it fascinating because both of you, I think, were in the industry when this actually came about, which was around... 96, or maybe it was a little bit before that, 94, but 96 is when companies had, from my understanding, I was doing a little research, but because um, I'm not that smart, but um, it was saying that it wasn't widely known to the public and cookies were accepted by default and users were never identified, like uh, notified so uh, of their presence. When Do you guys remember when that came about and how you felt about it compared to like how it is now? Like, did you ever think that it would come back to this where, Oh my God, I remember that back, back when cookies were like, you know, innocent, I guess. Put that cookie down now. I'd like to say I know, but I don't, I think the whole thing with this is that it's a kind of like frog in a pan of boiling, you know, in increasingly hot water, right. but I don't recognize the point at which, what we were doing, you know, we morphed from cookies used for returning to, um, you know, shopping baskets. So when we were building, when we were building websites back in the day, we had to build our own shopping baskets. And there was like, oh, we'd borrow some line of codes, lines of code or create our own. And we didn't think beyond the functional. At some point, that got productized. And with it came the kind of like, like a sort of Trojan horse came all of the kind of tracking technologies. And for us, it was a no-brainer because we previously have to spend like, you know, $10,000 of developer time to make one e-commerce site. Now we had a, you know, pull the handle and you've got loads and loads. We didn't realize as developers that actually we were seeding all of these sites with that kind of tracking technology, which then got picked up as part of this huge, you know, you've seen the, you know, the Lumascape, this, this, this map, that's published every year of all the intermediaries between us 
and the advertisers, you know, so between our eyeballs and the advertisers, and that grew 50% last year alone. So it's, 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 I, I don't know when this got out of control, but it does feel like it did at some point around, around that, that point in time. It's all right. That's fascinating. Uh, I've not heard of Dame Wendy Hall before, by the way. Um, so I'm going to do a little research and, uh, I'd love to see some of the things that, that, uh, Miss Hall goes on about. I, I intend on on stalking her intently now. I I don't even know who she is, but based on what you've already told me, I want to have her on the show. I've got questions. I've got lots of questions. She's brilliant. <laughs> she's a super famous lady over here. But she's she's uh, along with you know Sir Tim Berners Lee, and she's a colleague of him. He's she they've they've worked on a lot of the stuff that we're currently weighing up the ethical implications of now. So AI, you know, machine learning. Um, the web, she's been there uh, from the start. That's fabulous. AI and ML, a topic that we've only covered a handful in the show so far, I think is one of those areas from a privacy perspective, we must dig into far, far more. I am firmly of the opinion that AI and ML will do for us as a planet what PCs did. And I know that turns hyperbolic, but uh, you know, was it any more hyperbolic when Bill Gates said it? I mean, I guess, yes, it was hyperbolic when he said it too, but he was right. And I think we're there again, and I think it will be right again. Um, and that, and that's in the hands of technologists. We're going to build that. You, I, you know, et cetera. We're going to build that. And you mentioned how annoying you find cookie banners and badge. I do too. So what are you doing about that? <laughs> well, like I said, like I said, I, um, for the last two years, I've been trying to, rebalance that um as ceo of tap my data and um we wanted to focus i mean there've been a lot of projects i mean with the cookie banners our plan was always to use a cookie banners as kind of a foothold to then create something bigger that would handle all the you know the the requirements of gdpr and to a certain extent platforms like OneTrust do that now with for for companies with workflow around gdpr but there wasn't tools for the, you know, the consumer had been kind of left out. And the, if you think about it, the only way I have to show any, um, you know, exercise any control on the web is to click on a cookie banner, and which generally is designed to make me click, yes, I'm cool with all of it. Um, and I'm not even sure that my choice is then, is then respected across this huge ecosystem we've been talking about. Because actually the site that that uh, that I clicked it on is just an, uh, a gateway drug. If we want to keep laboring the analogy to yes. all these millions of other sites, from completely completely legitimate sites, from advertisers like the New York Times, through to you know the Indonesian click farmers and and organized crime and all that kind of stuff that gets into the pages of uh, the pages of Forbes. But I wanted to do something which, and I'd, I'd also, you know, as I got more into this, I'd heard a lot of um, BS, um, often from vested interests, saying that people actually didn't care about going any further than the cookie banners, that people weren't bothered about their privacy, and there was kind of like nothing to see here. Um, and I didn't, and also, also young people in particular, that they didn't care about their privacy and privacy was kind of dead. And if you see it, it's kind of on a, 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 a annual cycle. At some point, it, one month in every year, I read a, a, a big piece which says, privacy is dead. It's official. Let's move on. 
but um, I disagree. And what I wanted to do with Tap My Data was to have a series of consumer-grade tools which were easy to use for people on their phone to start to exercise their data rights. Also, I wanted to use, I mean, we talked about, you know, um, big impact technologies. One of these has been blockchain. A lot's been talked about blockchain in the past. And I didn't really get it until I joined Tap My Data because I'd heard about these these situations where blockchain would be transformational, whether like, you know, supply chain management or, you know, fight tracing the provenance of like high end, um, you know, uh, priceless violins or, or diamonds. And I thought I don't have either of those. So I'm not sure what relevance that has to me. But what struck me about the way that Tap My Data was using blockchain when I spoke to the, the, the techies who'd done the, done the, uh, the sort of the, uh, the, the MVP was that it was a really um, great use of blockchain because one of the challenges around data and data rights is that at the moment, we've found that around 130 companies on average have a record on us. That's, that's, that's what we found at Tap My Data. And um, that each of those companies is responsible for kind of marking its own homework in terms of saying, we kept Gabe's data secure, we we um, responded to his rights requests, we did the right thing, and we disposed of it um, safely when he asked us to do so. Um, now, with a blockchain, the blockchain can create, if you think of a blockchain as a kind of like a tally stick, you can create a record every time you make a rights request as an individual and every time I respond as a, as a company. That means you can start to create a, a, a public statement record around these data transactions. So if we think of, you know, a lot of the use of blockchain has been around, you know, DeFi and shuttling cryptocurrencies around. We can also do that with data. And I really like that. So that combination of 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 easy to use tech and the blockchain keeping the score, I found was a really nice evolution of what I've been trying to do with the cookies which was tried to get my head around what was happening with, with data um, and also to give people back more control about that. And, you know, what I liked about Tap My Data is it focused on that one single task, which was getting that data, knocking on the door of companies and getting that data and holding it securely on your phone when you got it back. And as I mentioned before, we found quickly that people did care about their, their data, they they love the tech and they were curious about where their details had got to. And one of the first things, that's when we could start to use third-party services. So there's a service called Have I Been Pwned, which we integrated the app very quickly with. Now, what that shows, what that tells you, it's got a database of all the latest breaches so that you can put your email into it and now into the app and then find out whether your email has been compromised in the latest breach, you know, and you know, the latest one has been Clubhouse. So it follows whether it's LinkedIn, Clubhouse, wherever the people are, the data is, there's also risk. So what, you know, we... It's a we, fabulous service, by the way. And, it uh, is. Troy, yeah, Troy Hunt, who created and runs that service, he actually just also added the ability to enter in your phone numbers after the big Facebook breach. Um, I love Troy Hunt. I should get him on the show as well. Troy and I actually worked together for a while back oh, in the Pfizer days. He'd build things, I'd break things. Um, you said something a couple of times, and mm. you keep using this word intentionally, which I appreciate, agency. And we're also gotten into this conversation a lot about, do people care about privacy? Yes, no, maybe so. And what I think I hear you telling me is, is 
they don't want control of their data. They want agency over their data. And, I, and I'm, I'm drawing a distinction in my mind over what I believe that means, right? Um, namely, that, that when they're asking for agency over their data, they want the sense of control over their data, that they can direct it. But they don't necessarily need to be the directors of it. Is that – am I chasing the right uh, – yeah, I think I think and, and you know I think you've hit the nail on the head. I, I think the, the the challenge is that lots of this stuff is nuanced. You're absolutely right. I don't want to be in control of every single um, you know call around my data, and that's where the likes we talked about Apple are stepping in as a kind of digital Jeeves that they say, well, we you can trust us. Tell us what you are happy with, and then we will give you. We will you know, autopilot you through a lot of this and we'll give you a heads up when you need to take a call. That could be an ethical call or it could be a, do you want, you know, a self-interest call? Um, you know, do you want to make money from this? Or it could be a um, situation where you're asked to make another kind of um, transaction, which, you know, which echoes more of the kind of social transactions we do. Um, you know, we do all the time. And I think with cookies to a certain extent and cookies and the terms and terms of condition, terms and conditions we signed for like platforms, we are almost giving them sort of like power of attorney to do all sorts of things on our behalf, mostly to make money from our data. And I think what we're looking at, so, so this, this term, you're right. I keep on bandying around. It's agency. It embodies control. It embodies trust. And it's also it's also collective. That point I was talking about before, that like on my own, it's it, it, it's very difficult to affect change. And yeah. actually, I've probably got I've probably got better things to do than to try and like you know turn that super tanker around. That's been a self fulfilling prophecy because again, what we saw before tap my data, the the um, uh, the idea that a lot of people had around people who asked for their data from companies was that they were cranks, that they were privacy nuts, or that they were investigative journalists, or that they were ambulance chasing lawyers who were trying to build a case. Actually, that's not, you know, that's not the case at all. We found that a lot of a lot of times it was people who were concerned after a breach, or they'd grown up in in parts of the world where the state had exerted undue surveillance on them. And they felt uncomfortable with the degree of commercial surveillance they were currently under. So people have all sorts of reasons. But again, this idea that, that, that of, of getting together and having either a company that I trust to represent me or a collective, a union, or, or you know, the, the data dividend movement who's got my back, I think is really powerful. And I think so, so I think this agency. You know, it's it 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 starts with control, and then it ends up with a um, collective bargaining power, mm -hmm. um, and also also the opportunity for for legitimate advertisers to get collective, genuine insights into a whole group of people who think the think the same way. That means I can get better deals at the moment. You know, you talked about things like AI. Um, I think AI's got a fantastic potential which is already making itself felt there's also potential for um you know misuse in terms of um i mean if you think about um uh the amount of um 
machine learning and um, AI driven decisions that are already happening in things like hiring in, you know, in a COVID situation, your CV, when you apply for a job or you apply for a financial services product, your CV is already going for all sorts of non-human checks. Now that's fine if it's done correctly, but if that's, that's denying you access to life enhancing opportunities, then that's, that's, you know, potentially as serious a thing as what happened in the 1960s around, you know, redlining whole communities who were, who were shut out of access to those products because pr- predominantly along, along, along racial um, uh, grounds. Right. So there's a, you know, again, in this kind of situation where there's big tech with big data and big risks, you want to get together and have, have groups which can exercise collective muscle. What you're describing is, uh, you know, the the ethics problem in AI that inherently exists um, because models aren't exactly some superhuman thing. They're as good as the data they're trained on, full stop. That's all there is to it. And there's a lot of inherent bias in the models that we use based on traditional data collective collection mechanisms. Um, I think polling, for example, those traditional mechanisms reach a very specific audience where, you know, you you will be you will be inherently blind to an entire category of, of generations who do not use landlines, etc. Um, there's there's a lot in there. Karen, were you raising your hand? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, you're you're likening this problem to the healthcare problem we have stateside here. We have a black box problem in our Medicaid system, our medical system. We don't know how much our data is worth any more than we know how much having your kidney removed is going to cost at hospital A versus hospital C. You know, right? You you can't go and ask them that question ahead of time before you get that surgery and anyone will tell you. Well, let me let me do better. Let me let me make it a uh, to make it a spleen or something not not as essential, right? Like I just want to shop around for a little little elective surgery because I'm feeling I'm feeling a little froggy today, right? You can't do those kinds of things. So you talk about blockchain now making that a public thing. When I say that, the transaction of of my data, making the record of that a bit more public. Do we introduce something else here that, that we're going to have to account for? I might not necessarily want you to know that I had that elective surgery. I'm using a bit of an extreme, but maybe something a bit more you know personal like, you don't really need to know about my hemorrhoid cream use, right? Like, do you need to know about that? I sit in this chair a lot. That's all you need to know, right? Oh, no, he didn't. Um, I don't actually have that I feel I need to say that. That's all right. Sorry. You're in a safe space. That's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's okay. You don't have people listening. Very good. Very good. <laughs> but, but, you know, th- that agency also means I want to direct that information in a way that is very narrow in its usage. And I feel like those to your point, you know, clicking those little cookie buttons on the website. What did I just, what did I just say yes to? I don't know what I just said yes to anymore. And I know what I said yes to when I clicked at EULA. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're dead right. I think the, the, the problem is, is, is a lack of transparency. Um, and, and actually a lack of, a lack of design in a lot of us. I think that a lot of places that our data ends up, I think just just how uh, there's an assumption around AI that a lot of uh, a lot more of it is sort of super high tech and is done automatically than actually happens. There's still a, a, 
legions of people who are training AI algos kind of manually. And I think similarly, there's an amount of uh, there's a similar amount of slippage in the use of data and tracking technology. So that kind of situation where um, um, a a bad actor or a um, someone who uh, who might want to make a decision which would impact me materially around a me clicking something on a website or just visiting a website probably doesn't happen as much as we imagine actually what we've got a situation is where there's all of this data sloshing around it's ending organizations are ending up with far more data than they could ever use or wish to use i was talking i'll give you an example i was talking to um a uh someone a marketing manager for a biscuit company in europe and she was saying their data protection officer has stopped them from using any data at all retaining any data because he's taking a decision that um, they've not got a handle on it and it's just a risk. So that means that every time they do an email shot, they're doing it blind. So they have to gather all the addresses, send it once, they get no insights and they get they, they junk it. So you've got a situation where you've got that one end of that, that one end of the spectrum and the other where you're harvesting so much data, you don't know what to do with it, that there's... There's a kind of a maelstrom of data. I think, like I say, I keep coming back to this 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 concept where, if I've got a a place a, to, a set of tools whereby I can control my consents and I can control my preferences, so I can say right now I'm interested in like you know um, steroid cream for my shoulder. Um, then I um, um, I can I can start to open and close those ports rather than having that as an indelible mark on my online profile because um, again machine learning just like um, behavioral advertising is pretty um, crummy at um, delivering the contextual element and also moving with us so I still get I'm sure you've had a situation you know I still get you know um, uh, database think databases thinking I've got an old job or I'm at an old address and things like that. But the more we're given control over our data, the more we can start to do our own CRM with it. So again, that starts to fix this problem of too much data and too low quality. And again, what we're starting to see now in a kind of blockchain context is like decentralized data markets. So at the moment, there are data markets like ocean protocol where you can take a data set so like say you've got some data from an app that you've built you can put that on the market and you can sell that to data buyers again the problem is that the the quality in that is only as good as the lowest common denominator if you can combine decentralized data markets with tools which i guess like you know tap my data is the first one of the first examples of, uh, and there are others, then you can start to have a situation where I choose the data I want to get captured, or I can be offered, given the opportunity to have that data captured, I can dictate who it's sold to, or delegate that to my collective, and I can start to get a real income from that. Um, And that, that really is within our grasp. All the tech is there, 
Um, but it's just being used to a different end at the moment. On the blockchain space, it's been moved used for DeFi, which only affects like one to two million people. We're talking about a market for data, which is every, you know, potentially every 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 citizen in the US, in Europe. And that's even before you get to to developing markets where the mobile phone plays such a bigger role already in sort of data commerce. So this is this is a really huge thing to fix and then start to you know to start to build in a different way. That's fascinating, Cam. Yeah, I've been, I've been completely hogging the show. I'm I'm so sorry. How dare um, you make the show so entertaining? What that, what that means, nobody. <laughs> We're going to have to do a part two for sure as well. We're absolutely yeah. going to do a part two. If you'll, if you'll have us. Right. No problem. I'd love to. And what great questions. Yeah. yeah. All right. First of all, I could probably listen to you all day, Gilbert. So I hope we get to do a two, three, four. Just have a, a series with Gilbert. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm here all week, folks. folks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so this, this section is our, our dark, dark, deep secrets. We like to be a little bit different from, from other podcasts in, in this realm. So we want to get to know you and the listeners want to get to know you a little bit, uh, deeper. So, um, I'm going to start off with one that I really like, which is if you could put one thing into a time capsule and then open it up in 10 years, what, what would you want to put in there? Wow, that's a that's a um, that's a great question. Um, I think it would be there's a there's a there's a lot of um, uh, uh, sort of hype around sort of crypto and blockchain stuff at the moment, um, and a lot of it's currently focused on like NFTs. NFTs sort of remind me of some uh, something out of like Harry Potter, where you've got those paintings that talk and move, <laughs> and they're sort of they're a combination of digital art. And my 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 oldest daughter like creates all this kind of manga inspired digital art, and she's in she's in her room all the time doing this. And it's I I can observe it from her social accounts. So I'll go into her room, I say, "What are you up to?" She'll say. <laughs> and I'll leave because that's what she wants me to do. But then I'll see her activity on Instagram. I think what's amazing about what's happening with these NFTs, and a friend, a friend of mine, Jamie Burke at Outlier Ventures, is sort of is, is is leading this, is how you can associate an artwork with a unique set of properties. And right now, you know, so it can be it can be individual. So if you want to buy like, you know, Banksy and a Banksy artwork and you want it to be digital because it's been sprayed over on the wall, it was originally done. You can do that and you can pay like, you know, $60 million. Some people were paying for this. The other element is that you can buy a hundred dollar share of a, of one of these artworks and they can sell a thousand of those. And it only comes together as an artwork when you recombine them all. I think that starts to get really magical. So I'd, I, I, I'm, I'm intrigued. It may just be a fad, but it may be something that we'll look back on as a sort of, you know, democratization of art and creativity in, I think we said like 10, 20 years or something like that. Yeah. You go, oh my God, how do we ever get by without all of this? Because it just, it just, it just gives access to um, people who want to buy creative output um, to um to those creating it um so that i think that's what i put in my in my time capsule 
So I'll ask the cool. next question then. Yes. Yep. Which is if you could have any one superpower, what would it be? Um, I think it would be in a house in lockdown with three other people. Um, I think it would be invisibility. <laughs> so that I, I'm constantly being followed around the house by one of my children trying to find me to get me to do their bidding. So I think, and I'm very happy to do that, but it would be nice to have a, um, be able to be a fly on the wall for a bit and, and, and disappear for a bit. And also, I mean, living in a, in a city like London, you know, with like, I don't know, something like 12 million odd um, people, um, it, there's something wonderful about wandering around and being completely anonymous. And that's, I've been missing that with COVID because yeah. I'm just going around the same block and ha- here everyone knows my name and it's, it's, it would be nice to be, nice to be invisible in a, either in a small or a big place. I got a question for you, clearly. If you could ask the Queen of England one super silly question, what would you ask her? Um, how many corgi dogs is too much? <laughs> too many. You know what I mean? I, 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 I don't think anyone knows how many she's got. Probably not even her. It's just like she'll find a new batch of them. They've been reproducing in the East Wing and she'll go, <laughs> oh, there's another six. <laughs> And have you ever seen corgi butts? The answer is there are not none. There's no too few number that you can have of corgis. Not at all. It's a good question. Now. A good question. Um, Gilbert, what's your favorite band? I see some guitars back there. It looks like you play. Yeah, I, 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 I'm in a band which is called uh, Ton 50. And it's, I'm ashamed to say, given our conversation, it's on, we're on Facebook. It's T-O-N-5-0. Um, and um, I, so I like my classic rock. So I think probably the band, actually, I have to say the, the person I keep coming back to, and again, who my teenage daughter plays as well, is David Bowie. Wow. Oh, wow. Good what, call. What a, I like a, that. I like Bowie. Yeah. ACDC? Where, where, where are you putting ACDC in the rotation? Heavy in the AC, rotation? Light on the rotation. ACDC are, 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 are fantastic, but I, I, I prefer Black Sabbath over ACDC. ACDC gets a bit, I love them very much, but they get a bit two dimensional. Uh, the judges will allow it. <laughs> That's good stuff. Favorite, uh, favorite drink? Um, tea. Lots and lots of tea. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a, I remember when like selling the, um, my company to an American company and everyone else was American and we'd be like the, the English people would gravitate towards the tea station and that's, that's, we make tea, but that's also how we communicate. So it was a bit like being <laughs> in, you know, like in a, in a, um, you know, a, one of those World War II dramas where we're meeting together and like talking about innocuous things. Actually, what we were talking about was our hopes and dreams but it was over, you know, one lump or two. So tea is a highly socially charged activity in UK and one that I'm into. Hey, I love tea. Gabe's a huge fan as well. He's always got tea by him. I like coffee and tea, but, you know, I like both for sure. Um, <clears throat> two, two important questions here for you. Can you fold a fitted sheet? No. Yeah, I don't even know. So I'm going to go with that. That's a good answer. <laughs> yeah, it hasn't featured. 
<laughs> I mean, can I can I fold it well? Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I can fold it after a fashion. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Certainly. Can I put it back into its original packaging? I don't think anyone can. <laughs> and That's this not one's actually a thing. This one's really close to Gabe and our uh, our hearts. <clears throat> um, what's your what's your toilet paper situation like when you put it on the roll? Is it over or under? Um that's surprisingly insightful. Um, over, over. But I don't make it into a little triangle because I'm not working in a hotel. <laughs> or a little rose. You ever see the little? <laughs> you got too much time on your hands. <laughs> I'd, have, yeah. I'd have to. I'd have to make one of those like every two of those every day. <laughs> awesome. Well, Gilbert, thank you so Brilliant. much. Um, really, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate what you do. I could listen to you all day. And uh, we're going to have to have you come back on for, for a part two and I'm sure other, other parts as well. So thank you, uh, Gabe. Yeah. This has been fabulous. I really appreciate Great. your time. Thank we, you guys. We definitely can have this conversation in more depth and I'm looking forward to having you back on the show. Brilliant. Thanks a lot. Right on. I just wanted to thank all of you out there for tuning in each and every week. And to all of our amazing guests for coming on. I, I know that, there are millions of other shows, and it means the world to have you with us on this journey. We are so grateful that you choose to listen to us each and every week. If you like the show, tell a friend, have them tell their friends, and then make maybe make some new friends along the way uh, so we can continue to spread the word and keep learning together. Let's protect what matters most. And by the way, DJ, can you go ahead and drop that outro beat and keep it classy? We'll see y'all next week. Next week.